everybody. My name's Professor Peter Nash from the Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Jeffrey Sparks, the French population scientist from the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, along with Zachary Wallace, rheumatologist and clinical researcher from the Massachusetts General Hospital. Good morning and welcome, guys, and thank you so much for giving up your time this morning. We're going to be talking about the latest results from the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance Physician Registry and the, your recent publication in the Annals of Rheumatic Diseases. So could I just ask you guys to introduce yourselves and where you're working and what you're working on? Jeff can start. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, my name is Jeff Sparks. I'm a rheumatologist and clinical researcher here in Boston at Brigham Women's Hospital. Uh, I typically work on rheumatoid arthritis, epidemiologic and patient-oriented studies, but couldn't resist getting into COVID as well. Obviously, it's impacting all of our patients, including rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, I'll let Zach. Sure, thanks. Yeah, I'm Zach Wallace. I'm also a rheumatologist and a clinical researcher in Boston. I'm at Mass General Hospital. Uh, before COVID-19, most of my research focused on ANCO-associated vasculitis and IgG4-related disease. But Jeff and I uh, happened to form a great collaboration a little over a year ago uh, to study how COVID-19 affects our patients. And so I'm happy to be here today to talk about one of the products of our collaboration. Excellent, excellent. So can we ask each of you how COVID really has affected your practice and what sort of changes have you seen both your practice and maybe the, the wider American uh, practice of rheumatology? I hear a lot from Jack Cush and Alvin Wells about telemedicine. And I'm just afraid that no one is going to examine the patients from now <laughs> going forward. Jeff, what do you think? Well, this is a topic in of itself, but the, you know, we were completely virtual probably until late June of 2020. And I uh, kind of alternated clinics where it was half and half. And I think demand really went down probably Oh, even before the vaccine, it was becoming a little less um, less demand. And I think once the vaccine was really widely available, it's really um, not nearly as, uh, I mean, I probably do 95% in person at this point, but obviously it affects the conversation and, you know, medication choices and talking about COVID safety, including all the other safety issues we have to talk about. And, you know, certainly Rituxan prescribing has been probably the thing that's been most affected um, and obviously what to do around vaccinations. So that, that's the brief, brief one for me. I don't know what else Zach has to add. Zach, what about Yeah, no, I, I think I've had a very similar experience. A lot more patients now are coming back in person, which is really a pleasure. It's great to see people and examine people again. It turns out it's very difficult to examine joints over video. Um, but, you know, I, I agree. I think the now a lot of the impact that I'm seeing is on how we use our medications um, and, and how we think about the safety of them in this context. I think Jeff and I are lucky to live in a part of the country and the world where the vaccination rate is very high. And so um, things are generally, I think, more safe for our patients in our community, which is helpful, but still concerned about um, risks in many of our patients. And I think in general, we're just seeing a lot of the um, impact that this whole experience of the pandemic has had on our patients in terms of their own um, mental health and, and physical well-being. 
Well, I've been listening to some uh, podcasts from the US, Kara Swisher and Sway and Scott Galloway and Pivot and whatever. And they're now talking about Amazon into pharmaceuticals, like the, you get your pharmacy prescriptions. And they're now talking about going into telehealth as if it's a wondrous thing and people won't have to go and see doctors anymore. It'll all be done over the net and save everybody time and money. It sounds very dangerous to me, but let's talk about your uh, COVID registry. Can you just give us a bit of a background as to how it all came together, the registry itself? Zach, maybe you, you want to take that one? Yeah, yeah, I can I can lead, lead us off with this one. I, I think this is an been an amazing example of how the rheumatology community globally has come together um, in this in the face of this great adversity to really think about what are the key questions that we need to try to answer for our patients. And in that spirit, uh, a group of, of rheumatologists, myself included, and, and Jeff as well, came together to form the Global Rheumatology Alliance. And this included folks from around the world. Um, and really the, the aim and objective of this group was to advance our understanding of what the impact was of COVID-19. And in part to do that, we established uh, sort of a registry that physicians and other medical providers could put data into about patients that they were seeing who had rheumatic diseases and had, had uh, caught COVID-19. And so that was kind of the beginning of it. I, I don't know that we knew what to expect. You know, we had no idea what was going to happen with COVID-19, um, but clearly, obviously, it's had a huge impact on patients around the world. And we now have, I think, over 15,000 cases of patients with um, the history of rheumatic disease and COVID-19 in the registry, and it's led to a lot of important research, including this study. It started over Twitter, didn't it? A conversation amongst <laughs> rivers? Yeah, yeah. It started as a, as a conversation over Twitter. Folks in the GI world had, had established a similar registry. I think we were uh, uh, watching what they were doing and realizing that we needed to really do something similarly. Um, so it started as a conversation, quickly moved from Twitter to Slack, and from there, really just blossomed into this amazing organization that it is today. So where where is the data kept? Who who sort of, is, is it all voluntary and filling in forms and getting rumors as well as patients, because you've got a patient registry as well. Yeah. Like, I mean, a physician put in data and the patients put in data as well. Where's it all kept and who, who runs and keeps the data? <laughs> Yeah, so there's there's two sites. Uh, UCSF manages uh, the data that's inputted from the United States and basically everywhere other than Europe. And then the University of Manchester handles all of the data that's inputted um, from, from Europe. And that has to do obviously with some of the differences in, um, in safety and, and uh, confidentiality. Uh, but then basically all the data is uh, shared for analyses um, across the institutions. Um, but it is, there is, as you said, a physician registry. There's also a patient experience um, survey. There was a first wave early in the pandemic, and now Jeff's actually leading uh, a follow-up to that, looking specifically at vaccinations. Because I've seen some EULA publications. Are they sort of a rival registry, or is that just keeping the European data together and it's all shared otherwise? Yeah, exactly. It's all shared. Um, so they're not rivals. We're all we're all in this together, um, and it's really been a, a great collaboration. We um, UR is invested in this, ACR is invested in this, and and it's um, it's been a lot of fun to be a part of it. Uh, 
Okay, so let's talk about this paper a little bit. Can you just tell us what you tried to do and what methods you used in? Yeah, Jeff, you want to take this? One? Yeah, sure. Um, well, actually, this is something Zach and I had discussed, I think maybe April of 2020, because I think something that got brought up pretty early was, you know, the very early reports, everything was lumped together. It was all of rheumatology, it was every, you know, it was DMARD, yes, no. So it was kind of really kind of blunt. And I think a lot of what we were asked in clinic was, all right, I'm on a particular medication. How is this gonna affect my risk compared to an alternate medication? And so this is really kind of the idealized analysis and you know, for better or worse, there were enough cases to actually do it. So I think we started broaching it in early of 2021 once we um, really had enough cases and we really wanted to limit it to a single disease and also state where you'd consider, you know, a, a pretty similar menu of medications. Um, so we, we chose rheumatoid arthritis, obviously near and dear to my heart. And um, we also chose to only analyze um, biologic and targeted synthetic DMARDs. Um, so we really wanted to try to address confounding by indication and also um, get, get patients who are in a similar disease state where clinicians would actually be uh, choosing medication, choosing between those medications, if you will. Um, the other thing we wanted to do is to look at baseline use. So sort of what they were on, you know, when they were first um, infected with COVID-19 to see whether that sort of might alter the trajectory of the disease course. So um, we really uh, analyzed each biologic and targeted synthetic DMARD class and uh, compared all of the classes to TNF inhibitors since it was the most common um, so that's sort of the framework of the study. So tell us a bit about the patient population. They are typical rheumatoids, females with half of them on steroids and all that kind of thing. Yeah, it seemed to have a lot of face validity. Is yeah, certainly the uh, typical about seventy-five percent were women. You know, a fair amount were in active disease. Uh, a, you know, a lot of concomitant DMARD use, particularly steroids. Um, you know, interstitial lung disease. So yeah, certainly the characteristics that you would expect in an, an RA population, uh, certainly an RA population that's using these types of medications. When, when you read it through, you've got a death rate of 5.5%, which sounds pretty high to me compared to the sort of 1% or less in the normal population. Can you put that into context for us? Well, I'd say first off, I, I think we're, we're very cognizant about you know, this is a voluntary registry and certainly um, I think the rates are a bit less interpretable because, you know, the denominator is a bit unclear and, you know, certainly some of the more severe cases might have been entered into the registry. Um, as an aside, Zach and I, we've been systematically identifying cases and also giving them to the GRA. There are a few other sites like that within the, the GRA, but you know, certainly Sorry, there could be a bit of selection bias as far as, you know, who gets in the registry that might inflate some of those outcomes for, particularly for poor outcomes. Sorry, what's GRA? Global Rheumatology Alliance, the, this data oh. set. Yeah, oh, okay, sorry. okay, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> we talk about it so much, it's second nature <laughs> to us. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I so think what, we're, what we're trying to be a bit cautious about interpreting sort of the absolute rates um, and really trying to really focus a bit more on the you know, relative risk. And we think it's a bit less likely that 
that selection bias um, really differs based on the exposure status, at least in this analysis, given that they're all on pretty similar medications and all in the same disease, but it's a good point. So what outcomes did you, did you chase? What were your, were your outcomes that you were looking for? So we used a we, we uh, used an ordinal outcome in this um, study. We wanted to borrow from what has been published um, over the last year in clinical trials and what's been adapted or developed by uh, the World Health Organization. Um, and so they use an ordinal outcome uh, that has, I think, seven or eight levels to it. We had um, we had a smaller population that we were looking at, and so we simplified that ordinal outcome a bit, and we looked at. Um, hospitalized without oxygen, hospitalized with oxygen or death as, as, our, um, as our ordinal outcome measure. And so when you see our results or when you're reviewing them, uh, you know, we report a single odds ratio. And what that really refers to is the odds of people exposed to that drug being one level higher or so on the ordinal outcome scale than people on a different um, medication. We also do report the, the, um, uh, each, each outcome as an individual measure as well, but our primary outcomes is ordinal measure. Would variety of different therapies people get in different parts of the world affect the outcomes? That's a good question. Um, I think that's one of the reasons actually that we limited it only to biologic and targeted synthetic DMARDs. Um, but you know, certainly I, I think even there, there might be more access to TNF inhibitors perhaps than some of the other therapies. So that's certainly um, something to think about. You know, we certainly did a, adjust for uh, geographic region in the analysis. And we have also performed some analyses that were restricted to the US only to try to have more of a level playing field related to, you know, different healthcare and also differences in the spiking of the pandemic. It wasn't in concert all over the world. Um, so we think that we addressed that by those sensitivity analyses, but that's, a, that's another good point. So tell us what you found, Jeff. Well, again, we compared everything to TNF inhibitors. So that's sort of the comparison group. And uh, the first finding, which I don't think was terribly surprising was that rituximab really had a, a, a very increased risk for poor outcomes. And I think the surprising part was probably the magnitude of risk. We're talking about a fourfold increased risk on, the, on this ordinal scale. And then uh, pretty similar when you look at the sort of binary levels of each of those uh, outcomes, hospitalization on fourfold increased risk compared to TNF inhibitor users. Uh, so we felt that that was, um, again, Perhaps not surprising that there was an association, but really striking about the magnitude of association. Um, the second finding, which was um, perhaps a little less uh, anticipated, was that we found that the JAK inhibitor class was associated with poor outcomes as well compared to TNF inhibitors. Not quite as strong of an association compared to the rituximab finding, but still consistent really within all the sensitivity analyses and also the analyses that we're looking at each level of this ordinal outcome. Uh, and then the other classes of medications that we looked at were interleukin-6 inhibitors. There was no statistical association with the TNF inhibitors. In fact, many of the point estimates were below one there. And obviously there's been a lot of interest in using that medication for treatment of COVID. So I think that kind of makes sense. Uh, and then lastly was abatacept, which showed no association in the primary analysis. 
most of the secondary analyses also had no association, but there was a secondary analysis where we used propensity score matching that showed a hint of uh, perhaps increased risk with the Batacept users. Um, so we felt that you know, the primary analysis was, was null and that's sort of how we interpret it, but I think that's one that requires some further investigation. Sure. And you had enough numbers to, to make valid assessments and comparisons. Like if you had 90% TNF and very small numbers of the others, that might be difficult. Well, we, had, we had a pretty compared to other studies that have tried to examine outcomes in this population. So, you know, ideally we would have had even more patients and our point estimates would be more, more precise and our comparables would be more narrow. Um, but, I, I, but I think our observations are, are still valid. It's interesting that JAXA got such a short half-life. It's touted as if you have to stop, they're gone quickly, and yet that really didn't translate to protection. Well, I think that's actually, I mean, that's such an important point. It's something that Jeff and I have, have spoken about um, as well, because, you know, when we think about the, the phases of COVID-19 infection, and you think of that initial phase where what's really happening is viral replication and sort of the acute infection, and then a second phase that's characterized more by hyperinflammation, it may be that even with the short half-life, it's interfering with that viral replication phase or the use of JAK inhibitors. And that's why maybe in our group of patients who are on it at baseline, it's leading to worse outcomes. Whereas if you start it during that hyper-inflammatory phase, like we've observed now in some of these uh, JAK trials, you see benefit. Um, so I, don't know, I think we need more studies that better understand exactly the influence of, of time and the exposure to, the, to, to JAK inhibitors. So the ACR recommends ceasing um, JAKs for five days around vaccination. From your study, can you give us some advice about how we should use vaccination and what we should tell our patients who are on a variety of different biologic and targeted agents? Well, I'd say um, as a blanket statement, it makes me want to vaccinate all of my oncology <laughs> patients, NRA patients. It makes me really want to successfully vaccine the, the patients on rituximab. And I think that's a more complicated story. Um, you know, I think my, I, I think obviously it's still up in the air and you wish you had a trial of stopping versus not for JAK inhibitors to really see what the answer is. Certainly we've had observational data that shows they have a bit of a lower titers, um, whatever that translates into clinically. Um, you know, I think that's one of the I think that was a, a, an appeal of the JAK inhibitors is that it had a short half-life and that you could have a pretty quick on-off. And I think, you know, given, you know, some of our, there's not a huge downside to stopping it. And um, there's perhaps a potential upside as far as maximizing the, the vaccine response. So it, it actually something that has made me more likely to really advocate that for my patients, um, even on, you know, imperfect data, just because, you know, five days on, five days off, um, you know, I feel like most, most patients, their disease is relatively controlled enough that they could stop it briefly and regain control if they needed to, if they even had a flare after that. I should have asked you, were you able to define any risk factors that led to bad outcomes, diabetes, lung disease, steroids? What were, hmm. were they the usual things or were there any surprises? Well, um, you know, there's been a few other Global Rheumatology Alliance papers that were a bit more focused on looking at risk factors. There was a paper looking at hospitalization as the outcome, another paper looking at COVID-related mortality. Um, and actually, we did broach that and looking at the covariates, and we realized that it was, um, 
you know, basically already covered in those other papers and perhaps a bit distracting because we really wanted to focus on, you know, these as our primary exposures. So uh, we ended up um, actually doing those analyses. I don't think it really uh, demonstrated a lot, a lot of differences compared to the prior publications, but uh, I don't know if Zach wants to offer more insight into that. Yeah, no, I think what we've observed is just, you know, a lot of the risk factors in our population are very similar to what we see in the general population in terms of age and sex and some of the habits that folks have. Um, and then there are some specific disease features. Obviously, we observed some having to do with DMARC use, but also um, steroids we saw appear again as, as perhaps a risk factor for worse outcomes. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a really interesting parallel with the JAK inhibitor finding, you know, as we all know, dexamethasone is the treatment for hospitalized uh, uh, COVID requiring oxygen. And, you know, our data and others have, all, have, have shown a similar finding where baseline use of glucocorticoids can put people at risk for poor outcomes. So that kind of lends a bit more credence as far as, you know, maybe our finding is related to when these drugs are used, not just sort of whether they're used or not at all. And where are you going to go with this research now? I think Jeff and I have a lot of plans. <laughs> but uh, I think that you know our, our next immediate step is really thinking about what can we do for these patients, especially the rituximab patients who appear to be at really much higher risk for worse outcomes when they're infected. Um, so we've thought about, you know, one is you think about how to really effectively administer a vaccine if it's possible to, to get them to have an appropriate response. And two is, you know, whether or not you're able to get the vaccine response, what you'd like it to be, is how you can use other risk mitigation strategies um, to help protect patients who are on rituximab and still at risk for COVID-19 infection, whether that's the use of monoclonals or, or other approaches. Um, I think those are really the, the priorities, along with thinking about how we can validate the JAK inhibitor study further and, and replicate it in another population would be really um, useful to see. I just think it's a concern for, for those vasculitis patients, lupus nephritis patients who need Retux, yeah. that they're gonna not be given a treatment that they need. Uh, at least we've got other choices in rheumatoid, as you say. So a take-home message from each of you gentlemen to the uh, clinical rheumatologist practicing away in his little um, thoughts on COVID itself and then on vaccination and how we should get, what we should be telling our patients with their therapies. Well, for COVID itself, I, I think it's, it's not, obviously we're, we're still, um, it's still an issue. <laughs> Even in places like Massachusetts in the U.S., where vaccination is really high, um, you know, you know, Zach and I are still are seeing breakthrough in patient, breakthrough infections even in vaccinated patients. Obviously, these variants seem to be an issue. I think another thing we didn't broach is there is this whole long COVID. You know, you get through and survive the initial infection. You know, this is really affecting our patients as far as DMAR disruption and you know perhaps flare related to that. Uh, and from our study. You know, certainly these medications do seem to alter the trajectory of the disease course. Um, so it is something that you have to kind of add to your banter when you're when you're starting or thinking about continuing medications is how is this going to affect their COVID risk? How is it going to affect their vaccine efficacy and safety? Yeah, I mean, I think the message is that we're not really out of the woods yet. Uh, certainly, you know, many parts of the world that don't have as much access to vaccine as, as we have had. 
Um, but even for our population that is vaccinated, that they appear to still be at risk from some of what we're seeing and what's being reported. Um, and so I think we need to think about what we can do when we counsel our patients about um, making sure that they're staying safe and doing what they can to get back to some, some normalcy of life, but, but do so cautiously. Because I know we're all anxious to kind of go back to normal. And do you interrupt treatment for vaccination? I've been following the ACR guidelines. Yeah, I've been following the ACR guidelines. I think, as you said, with our with my patients who are on rituximab, it's it's really tricky. Um, and, and certainly, you know, a flare of of, of their vasculitis or, or whatever disease I'm treating with, it could be could be devastating. And so, it's really a, a careful discussion and detailed discussion with our patients about the risks and benefits. We've been very lucky. We've had hardly any COVID here because we're in Ireland, and we're and we're lucky. But this long COVID, what's the commonest symptom? Fatigue, aches and pains? What, what are we going to be seeing in those people who've had COVID? Yeah, those things and also uh, dyspnea. Uh, and then some of the more specific things would be the anosmia and dysgeusia, which can be really impactful on quality of life, of not, not tasting or smelling for many months on end. Um, you know, difficulty cognition and headache are also pretty common, it seems like. So do you think we're going to see a, a whole slew of chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia type patients? Yeah, I think that's definitely the way things are headed. But I, I think the exciting thing is that there's such a great effort going on to better understand these complications and really study them. So I think we'll learn a lot from this experience, maybe not, maybe about fibro and chronic fatigue in, in our patients who don't have COVID as well. I think, you, I think you're 100% correct. There's a fantastic series of letters in the BMJ from a professor of infectious diseases who didn't believe chronic fatigue syndrome existed, got severe COVID, was ventilated, and now has trouble standing at the sink to do the dishes because of fatigue, having recovered. Wow. He's now a believer. But yeah. some of her letters are very insightful, and it just shows us symptoms we don't understand the pathogenesis, the pathobiology very well. So thank you, gentlemen, um, for your time. Thank you again, both of you. If you'd like to know more about this paper and others published in the CSF website this month, you can get detailed slide sets are available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or else you get your podcast media. Tell your friends about the podcast and let us know what you think with a bit of feedback. We greatly appreciate your time, Zach and Jeff, and hope you stay safe and, and continue your great work. We appreciate all the efforts you're going to. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Hope to see you in person soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully you like Copenhagen. Yes.